afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. I thank you for being with me as we begin uh, an Ash Wednesday reflection. Sometimes the cartoons in the New Yorker uh, actually touch on uh, a theological or spiritual issue. Not often, but uh, I remember one when uh, there was a beautiful cathedral, it's a cartoon again, beautiful cathedral, people streaming out, they're carrying their priest on their shoulders, his surplus is, is, is flapping in the breeze, and there are two men standing off to the side watching this you know, amazing outpouring of enthusiasm and cheer. And one of the guys says, what the heck happened over there? And the other replies, oh, that priest just said that sin doesn't matter anymore. <laughs> so chances are slim that uh, those of us associated with EWTN and Ave Maria Radio are going to be carried out on the shoulders of our listeners for faithfully teaching and preaching um, the book of Joel, which is what the reading is for today. Uh, Historically, the Catholic Church was known for having a deep and abiding understanding of sin. not merely as a deviation from rules, but as a corruption of the heart. We are, as St. John Paul II puts it, uh, an expert in humanity. And uh, you think of uh, the great Father Brown mysteries. Why was he such an astute detective? Because he knew the brokenness or the bentness of the human heart. So the the texts that are chosen by the Church for our reading today are really quite profound, and they make tremendous sense. So I'm going to read them, because if you were unable to get to an Ash Wednesday service, then you should at least be familiar with the text today. The first one comes from Joel chapter 2, and it begins the beginning of the chapter, and it goes like this. Then the Lord, then the Lord was stirred to concern for his land and took pity on his people. Even now, says the Lord, return to me with your whole heart. Notice he stirred to concern for his land. I mean, this was his great gift to the Israelites, his land. And he doesn't want them to lose their land. He takes pity on his people, and what does he offer them? He offers them repentance. Turn to me, turn to me, return to me with your whole heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning. Rend your hearts, not your garments, and return to the Lord your God. For gracious and merciful is he, slow to anger, rich in kindness, and relenting in punishment. Perhaps he'll again relent and leave behind him a blessing, offerings, and libations for the Lord your God. Blow the trumpet in Zion. Proclaim a fast. Call an assembly. Gather the people. Notify the congregation. Assemble the elders. Gather the children and the infants at the breast. Let the bridegroom quit his room and the bride her chamber. Between the porch and the altar, let the priests, the ministers of the Lord, weep and say, Spare, O Lord, your people, and make not your heritage a reproach with the nations ruling over them. Why should they say among the peoples, where is their God? Then the Lord was stirred to concern for his land and took pity on his people. Um, Again, an Old Testament passage filled with the drama 
of the day of the Lord. This moment, and the day of the Lord, of course, is, is identified, of course, at the end of time when we have the great judgment day. But the day of the Lord is also a reference to those moments in human history when God seems to break through into time and space and brings his judgment upon his people and upon those who are the um, enemies of his people. Joel chapter 2 um, gets to that uh, question. Now, it's important to, to then move on, of course, the, the, the responsory psalm is a plea uh, for forgiveness, as you might expect after this passage in the Old Testament. But then it gets to the, uh, the gospel. And let's just jump over there, because the gospel today is Matthew 6, verses 1 through 6, and Matthew 16 to 18. And it goes like this. Jesus said to his disciples, Take care not to perform righteous deeds in order that people may see them. Now, this is a, you know, at first glance, it may look a little funny here. Um, but notice, Joel, the prophet Joel is already getting at that point. Because if you recall, even now, says the Lord, return to me with your whole heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning, mourning. rend your hearts, not your garments and return to the Lord your God. So he's talking about interior change uh, in, uh, in Joel. So Jesus says, take care not to perform righteous deeds in order that people may see them. Again, focuses on the interior life. Otherwise, you'll have no recompense from your heavenly Father. When you give alms, do not blow a trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, to win the praise of others. Amen, I say to you. They have received the reward. But when you give alms, do not let your left hand know what your right is doing, so that your almsgiving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will repay you. When you pray, do not be like the hypocrites who love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on street corners so that others may see them. Amen, I say to you. They have received their reward. Again, the reward is what? It's the praise of men rather than intimacy with God. But when you pray, go to your inner room, close the door, and pray to your Father in secret. Ask your Father who sees in secret, and he'll repay you. When you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, the actors. They neglect their appearance so that they may appear to others to be fasting. Amen, I say to you, they too have received the reward. But when you fast, anoint your head, wash your face, so that you may not appear to be fasting except to your Father who is in heaven. And your Father who sees what is hidden will repay you. I want to reflect on those passages for a little while here. Today, of course, Lent begins with the sign of ashes. This is a communal sign of repentance. It's God's people have heard his trumpet blast, you might say, and we are now returning to him. All over the world, Catholics are receiving the sign of ashes on their foreheads. It's a sign that they're ready to do penance. It's a pledge. And by its very nature, it's a public matter. Uh, it's interesting. I mean, we don't roll up our sleeves to receive uh, ashes, right? And then pull down our sleeves afterward, just like, you know, we do we get our, our blood taken? You know, we get an injection or our blood taken, put our sleeves back down and cover the, cover the mark. No, not with ashes. We receive them on the foreheads. 
when nobody can fail to notice. And the ashes are um, not blessed to be taken away and used in private. Like, you know, water that's blessed at Easter can be done, but not ashes. Ashes are blessed to be placed on people's foreheads there and then. We're not meant to bring them home and wear them in private where nobody can see us. They are meant to be seen in public. And this causes a bit of a problem because uh, today's readings seem to say the opposite. Don't, isn't Jesus condemning any kind of ostentatious display of piety here? In secret, invisible. The prophet Joel says, let your hearts be broken, not your garments torn. In other words, let your interior life be fixed. Don't worry about the public display of tearing your garments. And in Jesus' gospel, Jesus says to the disciples, don't parade your good deeds before men to attract their notice. So is Jesus contradicting what he said in Matthew and what we're doing with Ash Wednesday? Uh, Matthew 5.13, didn't Jesus say, you're the salt of the earth, you're the light of the world, a city set on a hill cannot be hidden? Um, You know, don't light a lamp and put it under a bushel, but on a stand where it gives light to, you know, all in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Now, doesn't that sound contradictory to what he's saying in the very next chapter at Matthew 6, verse 1 on down to 16, about giving alms in secret, about praying in private? Does he favor visibility or invisibility when it comes to practicing our piety? Uh, If we're to be light, isn't the purpose of a light to be seen by men? But then why does he want it to be done uh, privately here? Some people have tried to present this as a a contradiction. Um, And at face value, you might say, well, yeah, that is contradictory. But when interpreting Scripture, you have to always ask, what is the author's intention? What's the speaker's intention? Who's he have in mind when he's speaking? So ask yourself, who are we supposed to keep from noticing how wonderfully religious we are in our piety, in our fasting, in our prayer, in our almsgiving? Who are we, who are we supposed to keep from noticing how, quote, spiritual we are? Us ourselves. We're not to be self-conscious of doing these things or taking pleasure in our piety. Don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Let your spiritual discipline be so habitual that you'll no longer notice that you're doing it. Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in his classic Cost of Discipleship, points out that uh, disciples should keep on following Jesus and should keep look, should keep looking forward to him who's going before them. But don't be looking at themselves and what they're doing. The righteousness of the disciple is hidden from themselves. So those of us who would follow Jesus ought to be kind of forgetful in this respect. We should lose our our, um, overpowering sense of self. So as we forget ourself in our, quote, display of piety— His light is able to shine brighter through us. It's not refracted any longer through our own self-preoccupation and busyness. Um, It's not darkened as a result. Jesus makes it clear that we are to follow the Lord in the Lord's way. And how we follow Jesus is as important as the fact that we follow him. 
The point here is we guard against calling attention to ourselves through our spiritual disciplines. We're supposed to be to such a degree of the cultivation of these virtues that we even forget we're doing them. On this Ash Wednesday, we're taking a look at the readings of today. It begins from the uh, prophet Joel, who, in fact, talks about something very different than what we just heard in that bit of uh, chant. Uh, He's talking about the blasting of trumpets uh, in a call to worship, a call to repent, and uh, sound the alarm, basically. God is coming, uh, is what Joel's saying in the second chapter. And... uh, He's the prophet's alerting us to our need to repent, to return to God. And he's talking about the day of the Lord and how we ought to be living in anticipation of the day of the Lord. And then we have uh, the responsorial psalm as a call, a general call to repentance from the Psalms, a very common one that we all know. And then we've got Jesus in Matthew chapter 6 talking to us about keeping our piety, um, not doing it uh, to be praised by men. Really, that's three examples he gives. Uh, the scribes and the Pharisees praying, giving alms, fasting, and how what they're getting is praise from men. They're getting their reward because of their ostentatious religious display. And Jesus is saying, don't do that. And I've said, wait a minute, though. Just the previous chapter, Matthew chapter 5, isn't Jesus telling us to let our light shine uh, before men? How, how is that supposed to work? And the, the, the resolution of that contradiction is to remember that your left hand is not to know what your right hand is doing. In other words, your acts of spiritual discipline are supposed to be so habitual that you don't even know you're doing them anymore, that you're, you're self-forgetful in that regard. Um, in fact, I mentioned um, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, uh, whose book, The Cost of Discipleship, has been a modern spiritual classic. Uh, Bonhoeffer says in, in that particular book that the genuine deed of love is always a deed hidden to itself. And it must be, because Jesus is calling us not to attend to our own goodness or our own loves, but rather to follow him. That's what's supreme, not to let our left hand know what our right hand is doing. When we're giving alms, uh, Jesus' call to discipleship involves an overwhelming self-forgetfulness. We're called to righteousness. We're called to give alms. um, And these are possible because of what we've received. Uh, Jesus gives us the Holy Spirit by which we are able to cultivate uh, the virtues and uh, we are unable to do that apart from the gift. We can only do 
because we've been given. Jesus also directs our attention to prayer. Prayer is a, a perfect activity because when we pray, it's really done for no other purpose than itself, or at least that's what it's supposed to be. Jesus tells us to pray to the Father in secret. The Father rewards in secret. Um, and to pray like that means that uh, we are praying to the one who Jesus has made known. This is important because we're not just praying willy-nilly. We, we are praying to a specific personage. We are praying to God the Father. Jesus knows that even the Gentiles pray, but they don't know how to pray. The Gentiles think they need to impress whatever god or gods they're going after because, you know, by the quality of the rhetoric or by the intensity or frequency of their appeals. Jesus isn't surprised that Gentiles pray. After all, God created us to be creatures who desire to pray. But that desire has to be properly formed. And at the very least, we must know that we're to pray to our Father. But that's learned. That's learned from the one alone who knows the Father. And Jesus would tell us that all things have been handed over to him by his Father, and that no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. It's not about our search for God. It's about God's calling of us into intimate communion with him. And the whole aim of that is that our, quote, righteousness, our spiritual disciplines, our good deeds have become so habitual that we're entirely self-forgetful of them. The right hand doesn't know what the left hand is doing. There really is no contradiction between Matthew 5 and Matthew 6. We must be so forgetful of ourselves as we pray, as we fast, as we give alms, that we're not impressed by our own virtue. And as soon as we find ourselves becoming conscious uh, of performing our good deeds in public, when we realize, uh-oh, uh, I'm doing this to be seen, then we're no longer occupied with the master. We're occupied with our own status. We're wondering what people think of us. We're, we're trying to manage impressions, right? We're trying to, um, we're shifting our tone of voice or uh, we're, we're hoping to somehow create the impression of being a, a good person because everybody likes a good person. Well, not today. It's Ash Wednesday. Uh, no, today we remember we're ashes. No, ashes. Ashes are not for fragrant anointing. Ashes are not for public presentations. Ashes are dirty. When we receive ashes, it's a sign that we need God's forgiveness and grace. It's not a moment to get the cameras out and make publicity shots. Ashes are about humility. They are about self-forgetfulness. They're about knowing that our self, we, 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 are not, we don't even exist unto ourselves. We, we, our breaths are not our own. We come before God together on Ash Wednesday, acknowledging we have a common nature and we have a common stain on our nature, and it's called sin. And the sign of um, the sight of, of so many who are wearing this sign of repentance, today should be an encouragement to us. It, 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 it should remind us that, in fact, many— Many that you may not know are concerned enough about pursuing Christ and being his disciple 
that they don't mind being marked as children of the ashes. Um, think of, I mean, ashes are just a wonderful thing to think about here. What are they? I mean, they're, they're just, there's what's, ashes are what's left over after a campfire in the woods, after a picnic, after a bonfire. Um, sackcloth and ashes, right? It's not a fashion statement. Um, people don't sit around and admire ashes as though they're some kind of ornament. But ashes are a sign of camaraderie and companionship. It's for people who know where they come from and to whom they will give an accounting. You know, what's left over after a family outing you know, or a brush fire? Um, it, it's ashes. Um, ashes are what we see in Auschwitz, in Treblinka. Ashes are what we see in 9-11 in lower Manhattan. Ashes are a sign that something that was good is not there anymore. Father Fergus Kerr is a Dominican theologian who I like. He pointed out that in 1930, the great philosopher Ludwig Wittgenstein, who was a soldier in World War I, the First World War, wrote in his journal, and remember, this is 1930 we're talking about, quote, Out of the previous culture, there will be a heap of rubble and finally a heap of ashes. Yet over the ashes, spirits will hover. End quote. Wittgenstein had doubts about where European civilization was going. I mean, he could not have foreseen what was happening, you know, in 1930, before the rise of Hitler. But by 1938, he had become a British subject so he could visit Vienna without fear of being arrested as a Jew. Um, Kerr also, in his little uh, Ash Wednesday Reflections, gives us a history uh, going back to the 8th century where they used to form a cross on the forehead of penitents. And by the 11th century, this was a universal custom for both clergy and laity. So this participating in the ashes takes us back through church history, takes us back to the New Testament, takes us back to the Old Testament, where uh, repent those who repent are putting on sackcloth, marking their head with ashes. We want to make those connections. Those are family connections. We are that people. The ashes we put on our foreheads today are usually the residue of the palms with which he celebrated the entry of Jesus into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday at the beginning of Holy Week last year. So year after year, we're getting these ashes on our foreheads. Uh, We're told it's uh, out of dust that we have come and it's to dust that we'll return. Uh, It's uh, the sweat of our face that we eat bread till we return to the ground out of which we're taken. And yet, for all of our mortality, for all of our inclination to do sin, for all the sorrow with which we're afflicted, the ashes are always there as a sign of repentance and humility and conversion, not a sign ultimately of death. It's a sign of turning, and however terrible things are, and in our day, things have been, at least in my experience, things are, have turned out uh, socially, culturally, and ecclesially, have turned out uh, much worse than I had anticipated. Uh, no matter how terrible things are, though, there is that unquenchable hope. And we find it in the rubble. We find it in the ashes. We find a continuing presence of the Spirit. 
we, we find there, century after century, the hovering of the souls who have gone before us. The, those, the blessed, who are now interceding for us and, and waiting to receive us into their company in communion with the Blessed Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. These are ashes, but they're much more than ashes. They are a sign that we are being born again to a living hope, that we are provided that we receive them in repentance, that we are set upon a journey of return to the Father, that uh, he's there waiting us, waiting for us, welcoming us with all the joy, the enthusiasm, and welcome that we see in Jesus' parable of the prodigal son, which actually ought to be called the parable of the prodigal father because of the extraordinary joy with which he receives his son, even racing out to meet him. Ashes are a sign of that joy when we return. Cresta, isn't it remarkable how many forms we have learned to say, Lord, have mercy, over the ages, liturgical ways of saying it, musical ways of saying it, um, theatrical ways of saying it. But that appeal, Lord, have mercy, uh, is really one that, of course, is warp and woof of today's Ash Ash Wednesday. (laughs) When I, you know, every year... I think about what we're going to be doing on the program for Ash Wednesday. And I go back and I, you know, look through some of the things we've done in the past. And I've noticed time and again, I, I start, I didn't do it today, but in the past, I, I tend to start by saying, does it bother anyone else that Lent is just too familiar? So I'm going to ask that at the close of this segment, of the, I mean, of this hour. We've done it so many times before, right? Ash Wednesday and Lent. And those sins that you're repenting of and doing penance for, how many of them are new? I mean, probably not many. I mean, me either. They're a little too close, a little too familiar. They're kind of like ugly, <laughs> unkempt relatives that have been hanging around your house too long. It's, t- <laughs> it's really time for them to go but they don't seem to get the message. So you do it again this Lent. Maybe they'll get the message this time and go packing. Um, And then, so it's it's not odd if you feel a bit disappointed. Another year has gone by. Um, Didn't you think you'd be more sanctified, more holy than you are now, more generous, more merciful, more loving, more observant of the needs of others? more willing to help out, uh, less interested in being entertained, 
less interested in letting your thoughts go where they clearly shouldn't, less angry at your political enemies, more interested in the common good, not so much interested in winning issues as winning souls. I mean, didn't you hope that by now you'd be a better steward of your money uh, and your time or that you'd be more patient with the kids or how about gluttony, you snake? No, it's more like a mule. That's Fighting sins like pushing a mule. You get behind it, you push it forward, and all it does is shifts its weight. It doesn't go anywhere. Oh, yeah. I mean, look, there, I, I, I'm not despairing here. It's not that all that bad. There are victories. I am less impulsive, less apt to get angry. I'm less apt to raise my voice. I, I think I'm beginning to see the cultivation of virtue of patience a bit. Uh, I'm able to endure frustration. It's a good beginning. And if there's one thing that's changed um, for me uh, from my earliest days as a Christian is that I no longer think of the church as a kind of West Point for high-octane spiritual achievers who are trained to become kind of the Olympic team of uh, spirituality. Now I'm very much like Pope Francis's image of the church as a field hospital in which almost everyone in it is wounded in some way. All, even the healers are wounded, right? So I think that's good. I'm, I think that's an improvement over where I was uh, back what, in the mid-1970s. So I'm going to try to make Lent not so familiar. Um, it's, a good idea, it's a good practice, by the way, to actually um, get, get help. Get help during Lent you know, to keep you focused. Matthew Kelly has a daily uh, email exhortation. Um, Sister John Dominic over at the Sisters of Mary, Mother of the Eucharist, they have a Lenten journal which focuses on teaching the virtues and the practices of prayer, fasting, almsgiving. But it's a unique uh, method with very wonderful insight. It's a lovely exercise for Lent. Um, We'll have, we'll have those tools linked for you, too, uh, at AveMariaRadio.net. Uh, well, while I'm thinking of it, let me mention, too, we have a wonderful uh, set of Lenten reflections by our friend uh, Marcus Peters available in uh, our featured videos section. So if you go to AveMariaRadio.net, uh, you know, take a look at these, what we call the slider there, and you'll see these various... Uh, Lenten tools available for you, so let me urge you to do that. Ever since I was a little boy, Ash Wednesday has been the kickoff of Lent, right? Same thing for you. Lent's been a time of penance and resolution to change, and that, that's as it should be. Penance is related to repentance. In Greek, the word is metanoia. It, it means to turn, and we usually think of it as having deep moral significance. The truth is, though, that the word itself is morally neutral. It, it, it can mean to turn. Uh, in fact, in the Old Testament, it's often used that way. Somebody changes his mind, or they reverse an earlier judgment. It's a change. It's a turning. Judas, Matthew 27, 3, is talked about as having changed his mind. That's metanoia. But the most common use of the word, especially within the Christian tradition, has to do with conversion, change, turning of heart and soul. It means turning or returning, and it's used of people who have rebelled and now are returning to serve the rightful king. It's used of a faithless wife or husband returning to their spouse, uh, or it's used to uh, refer to uh, 
somebody who's played uh, a religious harlot in search of other gods and is now returning. It means much more than a change of mind. It means a reorientation of your entire life and personality. It means adopting or at least embracing the intention of a whole new line of conduct. It means turning from sin and turning to God. And that was the fundamental call of the prophets of Israel. It is interesting to study the 12 minor prophets and then, of course, the four major prophets. They all have one thing in common. It doesn't matter when or where they were prophesying. The one thing they all have in common is this call to return to the Lord. Change must happen. A change has got to come. And this return to the Lord has a sense of motion, too. Return from exile. Return to the Lord. There's, there's the external space and time movement, you know, from Babylon to Jerusalem. That's a changing. That's a turning. But it's really symbolic of the movement of one's heart from laxity and sin and captivity to doing justice and walking humbly and turning to God. So that, that whole imagery of, you know, return from Babylon to Jerusalem is meant to be, uh, you might say, a metaphor for our interior life from turning from sin, bondage, and captivity to Zion, to uh, God's gift, uh, to doing justice, walking humbly, and turning to our God. It's really an amazing word uh, because it, it doesn't refer to turning south or east or 130 degrees. It means interior turning. Um, uh, the command to repent, believe the gospel, is a call to motion inside or to move from sin. And it's what? Think about it. Usually some habitual sin that's carved its groove into our neurology. Temptation is what? Temptation is an invitation to slide down those neural pathways of habit, and then bang, you're thick in the swamp of you know, anger or lust or arrogance or self-pity. Sin siphons off life. It wastes it. Uh, sin is a precursor to death. It, it leads to bondage, captivity, and eventually suffocating of the soul. But when you turn, when you have that interior movement, you move from death to life, from bondage to liberation, from guilt to forgiveness, from darkness to light. The sinful self turns to the suffering but victorious Savior. And that's what Ash Wednesday is to be about. That's the return. The repentance is the motion of return uh, to Christ himself. And what we mean when we say turn, repent, is we mean taking our attention from fastening it, fastening it on one thing that's been destroying our life, sometimes subtly, sometimes overtly, and swinging it around to something else. The turn is from sin to God. You have to will it. And I keep stressing to people, too, that it, it, has, it can be small. It can be a small turning. I know we all like the big stories. I, what that, I saw a story the other day of a, a fellow who um, was uh, committed to drink alcohol, right? Um, 
what we would call an alcoholic today. This was from an earlier generation. And he was one of those who, when he turned to the Lord, uh, his desire for alcohol was entirely stripped from him. That's dramatic. That's not uh, my experience of what I've seen in my extended family. I've seen people who have had to fight regularly uh, to remain uh, sober. But it does happen. It can be dramatic. But I, I think it's important for us not to focus on the dramatic. We know it's there. For us, it's, it's the little turning. So when there is that invitation, or that temptation gives to slide down that neural pathway to lust or anger, to take the moment and do something simple to turn your attention from that to an Our Father, a Hail Mary, uh, something. Make any motion to release yourself from that grip. Um, you know, we live in a world which is constructed. When, when, when the scriptures tell us uh, that we're not to become friends of the world, world there has a, a technical meaning. It means the entire social networks and systems that are out there that are intended to make survival first and the pursuit of basically money, sex, and power. The whole consumer world is about messaging. It's about forming our identities around survival and around the pursuit of money, sex, and power. Um, You know, repentance is about turning from that messaging, Uh, turning from this calling for acquisition, uh, for external beauty, for influence, to turn your attention to God, to uh, fasten on the God. And remember, he's there to welcome you. I think this is where the disciplines of the spiritual life we sometimes forget have to be habitual. Um, we do them over and over and over again until they become second nature and habitual. This is the way the right hand doesn't know what the left hand is doing. So don't ever really avoid that feeling that I talked about at the beginning of the segment, that we've done this so many times before. We have. If you're a musician, you know what it means to practice your instrument and how necessary it is to master that instrument and to create music. The spiritual life isn't too different from that. We practice. We do things over and over and over again in order that we forget that we're doing them at all, and they become second nature. Yeah. I'm Al Cresta. Be back in just a moment. 